Hi there, and welcome to another episode of African Business Stories, your insight into female innovators and entrepreneurs building and running businesses in Africa. I'm Akego Okoye, and on the show today, we're switching it up a bit. We're going to pause from talking about our amazing female entrepreneurs and focus on our fathers. In honor of Father's Day, we've put together a special series titled Lessons and Legacy. It's a collection of conversations with some of my friends and mentors from around Africa on lessons they've learned from their parents and from experiences and the personal legacies they would like to leave for their children. These were all insightful conversations outside of the boardroom. On this episode, I caught up with Jude Moore, Senior Policy Fellow at Center for Global Development. He previously served as Liberia's Minister of Public Works. We talked about working for President Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, the first female head of state in the history of Africa, the lessons learned from that experience, the ability to overcome the circumstances of one's birth, and how he seeks to inspire his children. Hey, Jude Moore. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Um, how are you doing? Uh, as best as one can do in these times. My pleasure being here. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So I wanted to to start by by asking what it was like growing up in Liberia. Like, like most uh, people's childhood, I guess, it was it was innocent time, uh, you know, beautiful. I mean, it's like if I try to think back on the happiest moments of my life, I try to think about what things were like before the war, because my childhood is what Liberia was like before the war. Like all the violence that came after and everything that came after, I guess, in contrast, it just makes my childhood seem more idyllic than it actually was, but with everything else that came after. So it was a more innocent time. Um, kids, most of the schools back back then, and I guess they still do, everyone wore uniforms, different colors. So every morning between 7 o'clock and 8.15, it was just, you know, this beautiful rainbow of colors of different uniforms and kids joking um, with each other. And we, most of the schools were located along the main thoroughfare. So at the beginning, it would be like all of these colors. And then the further one got along, the colors begin to drop off because the kids were going off to school and stuff like that. Everything was about school and it was very competitive. I mean, it was always about who would go on the honor roll. Hmm. And if you didn't top the class this time, if the other guy did, like, it became like, okay, next um, next period is going to be my time. So, Judy, all that is going on and the war breaks out. Yeah. So how does that affect your education? And At first, it doesn't. Um, you know... Nobody knows. I mean, we just hear about rebels, but nobody knows. At that point, we didn't even know they were human beings. We thought rebels were something different. Hmm. And because we are so far from Monrovia, it takes almost um, a year and a half for the war to actually get to us. Really? Because, you know, they, they, well, the rebels, they're not traveling in cars. They're walking across the country. You know, hmm. they're capturing territory, holding territory, training young men to join their ranks, and then those young men move on to the next town to go and capture it. And and the government, the, the army, was putting up resistance in some places. And obviously, they weren't. They didn't really care much about... I mean, they wanted to get to Monrovia. They wanted to take over the capital, right? And then that, that, that would be it. 
But once the once the war finally arrived, everything ended. I mean, you have to remember everything I just explained to you about kids, you know, school and wonderful time, and all of a sudden, there were dead bodies. Hmm. You know, the rebels come to town, and people who it didn't matter whether you were rich or poor, if you worked with the government before and looked as if you were doing well, they right. killed them. You know, um, so that was the first time my family fled, because my father was a local aide camp to the president, which came with the rank of a general. But it was just titular. It wasn't. He wasn't a real army person. It was just he wore the uniforms. It was just a title that came with the. It was a rank that came with the title, hmm. and uh, he got that in the midst of the war. I mean, he went to Monrovia on one of the last flights, in and out of. Uh, Kit Palmer's. And when he came back, there were no other flights anymore. So we, we fled. And um, things changed beyond that point. Um, I mean, we saw people, kids we grew up with, we saw their parents killed. You know, it's like, and then, I mean, the people who were doing the killing weren't even adults. These were boys, teens, some of them preteens. And some of our kids, some of the kids we went to school with, hmm. joined. I mean, I, I think life in every country that's gone through a war is just split into two eras, before the war and after the war. Um, because in that intermediate period, there was, in some instances, um, cannibalism, you know. And it wasn't as if these people were terrible people. I mean, these were kids we went to school with. I mean, right. These were kids you competed with. Uh, you knew them. And, and and we knew that if our kids were doing that, then the other people, the ones who didn't know, were other people's kids from other places who were doing the exact same thing. And so we descended into hell. Um, and I think everything about my life, what I've become, who I've become, the aspirations that I have were formed in those moments. Um, because my mom had given birth to a set of twins probably uh, maybe like two weeks before the rebels came. And we had to walk anywhere between 15 to 20 miles with the kids. Um, one of them was too fra- frail and fragile and she died on the way. And, and you know, it just felt like I said to myself, you know, if I grow up and I become a big man, I'm going to ensure that kids and their parents don't go through this. And so I guess my whole life has been in pursuit of that. I mean, obviously I didn't know what exactly it would be, right. but yeah, uh, the war was hell. So that drive and determination took you to the U.S. to college, and then you came back to Liberia to work for the first female head of state in the history of the continent. Absolutely. What was that experience like, and what did you learn from it? Mm. It was, you got to, I mean, the way I always said it, the way I always described it to people was that there there would never be a second first female president in Africa, right? This is it. And I had a front row seat to that. You know, the oldest independent country in Africa is us, Correct. right? We became independent in 1847. So between 1847 and 20, in 2006, a woman has never won a popular election to be president in an African country. This woman did it. it can you imagine? And so when the opportunity came, and you have to remember when I was a kid, we read about her in the newspaper. Like, you know, this was right. someone, I mean, we knew the name and you could recognize the picture because she was one of the few prominent women in politics. She was one of, uh, there was a coup d'etat and 13 government ministers were executed on the beach. She was one of, I guess, one of the few people who was uh, spared 
you know, she had run against Charles Taylor in the first election and she lost to him by far. But so she was a prominent figure and you knew about her, you've mm. heard about her. And the first time I ever saw her was me on my way back to Liberia to go and work for her. And she was on the same flight and she sent the chief of protocol in the back in the economy section to go and find this person who was going to work for her. And it was the first time I had seen this woman I had seen in newspapers, and, and, and but it was the first time actually talking to her face to face. So it was incredible. Um, but then, you know, got in, the, 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 the one thing that I remember from her, and I hope I can replicate, right. was that once a person demonstrated ability, it didn't matter. So, you know, I, when I was made minister, when I was appointed, we have the U.S. system where the president appoints the minister, then the Senate hmm. confirms. The, the, the Senate refused to hold hearing because they said the boy too small for the job, right? It's a small boy. <laughs> and, right. But the point I wanted to make with that was that she appointed me to the job, though. And I wasn't the only one who was in my 30s and appointed a minister. Once a person demonstrated ability, she gave them responsibility. Right. And, and, and the, the final thing I would say is that she allowed me to critique her decisions and disagree with her. You have to remember, this is, I had just come out of graduate school. I had never worked in government before. Me working with her was my first government job. But sometimes there were decisions that were made and I would come in and say, Madam President, I really don't think we should do this. And here are my three reasons why. Right. And she's really sold on that decision. She would be like, okay, I'll take that on that advisement. Thank you. And other times she would be like, you don't think so? She'd be like, no, like, okay, call the minister. We'll go in a different direction. The ability for a leader to be so secure in herself that she will allow, you know, allow critique from people who, to be honest, like she'd been in public service almost 30 years by the time I came on board. Like, what mm. did I have to offer? But she opened and allowed the space for that to happen. And so over time, um, she had enough right. confidence in me. That when I when I offered an opinion, she understood that opinion was being offered from the, from the best of intentions because that's the kind of office she created, that's the kind of space she created. And so, there were at one point there were like six of us who were in our mid to late thirties who were ministers at the deputy minister and assistant minister level. And it was like kids, right? I mean, there are people in Liberia who would have been in the government ten years, twelve years. And we still be in the mid thirties and at high levels wow. because she understood that the population was so young that it was really important that young people be given the opportunity in leadership because theirs was this country anyway. She was in her seventies, late seventies by the time she was president. So I think that's one of the things that I remember about her was that ability to trust people and to allow them to make mistakes. Right. So how how does that influence how you lead today? So when I, I when I became uh, minister, I basically, I sort of replicated because in the president's office, I was head of the president's delivery unit. So I created something called the, um, the project projects coordination units because the Ministry of Public Works has this vast portfolio of projects. So I had a team that was actually reporting on all of those projects for me. Of course, the, the deputy ministers didn't like it because they felt like these kids were checking on them. But they were my right. eyes there. But most of the people in that team were young. Second thing I did was I, in terms of project engineers, engineers who are responsible for big projects, I assigned up those roles to female engineers. In fact, the first time I arrived, one of the first things I did was to call my female engineers and ask how I could be of use to their careers. Because right. people felt like engineering is a man's job, you know. And so most of those things were given to men and not to them. 
Second thing was I felt like among my assistant ministers, there were some of them who were lazy and it didn't work. And there was this uh, female engineer who was really good. And I felt like there had to be female on my staff in terms of the minister. So I made a recommendation to the president. Why was I doing all of this? Because when I was in the presidency, we spent time thinking through that at least 20% of executive leadership had to be female. Right. Right. And so this was something we did intentionally. So when I became my own boss and established my, my own office, basically everything I learned from the president, I replicated there. And for, for me, so my, for example, my, my uh, chief of staff, she, uh, she had been with me in the presidency. And when we came to the ministry, she came with me um, and she was young. And, you know, and people were, of course, the same thing. We were like, oh, she can. But the thing is, the special assistant to the minister is at the rank of an assistant minister. It doesn't matter whether you like it or not. And so we went to the meeting and I told people that being disrespectful to her is being disrespectful to the minister. I'm not going to countenance that. And because of that, basically what happened was that especially the young people, the young engineers became really empowered. And it wasn't because I wanted them to take advantage, but the point was we had all of these young people who were capable, but they had to wait on the sidelines and be given responsibility. So for me, again, the second thing was because they were young, because they were just starting to take responsibility, there were going to be mistakes. You allow people to make mistakes and learn from the mistakes because that's how, that's my experience in working with the president. So I think I couldn't have had a better like mentor in terms of how one is to do leadership. And we're, we're very grateful for her style of leadership. And it's, it's interesting that, that in the world today, there's a lot of attention, a lot of um, focus on the fact that in this coronavirus um, crisis, the countries that are, are, are being led by women, even in the US, the cities that are, are, are doing phenomenal work are being led by women. So there's a lot to be said for what happens when women lead. So yeah, yeah conversation for yeah. another day, but there is a yeah, lot to be said. Um, so, so yeah, so we're celebrating Father's Absolutely. Day. We're, we're taking this, this opportunity to to speak to dads, and I'm wondering, based on yes. on your experiences and and all that you've been through, how do you inspire your children? So I think my, for my son, who's five, I think he's at that place where most kids are, where his father is the epitome of everything gray. Like he wants to be like his father. He tries to talk like him, wears his shoes and stuff like that. So for him, I think it's going to take time to actually try to figure out and narrow down the things about his father that he, you know, likes. Um, He grew up with me being minister and being in a position of, of me giving speeches. I remember I gave a speech at my undergraduate alma mater and he was in the crowd and then he, at some point he just, it was enough. So he just walked on the stage to me, you know, and, <laughs> yeah, and helped me finish my speech. But so that's him. As for my daughter who was born here, grew, grew up here and whose mom and the whole other half of the family is white. I think she understands where I came from when I came here and the difference between the life she leads and the one that I did at her age and and that because she's been to Liberia um, a number of times. So she understands what life is like in Liberia and, and what it meant for someone from Liberia to be able to come here. So I think, I don't know. Uh, I know that she, um, of course, she's proud of me too and shows people videos of me and, and you know, this is one of her friends. But I think my, my hope is what she sees is like what I saw in my own mom is the ability to overcome the circumstances of one birth, especially if they're negative like that. 
simply because a person is born in negative circumstances does right. not mean that that's their destiny, that a person can rise above the circumstances of their birth. And I hope, for, I mean, like every parent, I hope my kids exceed me in every way. But then if my kids decide that they don't want nothing to do with public life, and want to be private citizens and uh, be carpenters, so be it. Thank you so much. Uh, no worries. My pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. That was one of many conversations in the Father's Day special Lessons and Legacy. All the conversations in the series are available on my website, www.africanbusinessstories.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, on the Apple Podcast app or the Google Podcast app. And do leave us a review so we know how we're doing. I am Akego Koye and you have been listening to African Business Stories.